0: You are listening to Bear in Mind, the University of Northern Colorado's official podcast. Join us each episode as we listen to the voices from UNC faculty, staff, students, and alumni, as they offer insights of local or national importance. This is your host, Dan and Cox, bringing you just a taste of UNC. Throughout this book, do you have chapters that focus on each individual or do you merge them through
1: time? Is it, is it a linear progression? The goal of this book is to avoid two-dimensional lives. And to avoid two-dimensional lives, I focus on letters, correspondences, the intertwining of these men and their personal lives. Things that they covered up, Uh, things that they um, wrote only to their wives or their sons and called confidential, correspondences that they had with heads of state or members of intelligence services which they hoped would never see the light of day. There are five main characters who are all geographers and cartographers. They come from Germany, the United States, Hungary, Poland, and Ukraine. The American geographer who became the president of Johns Hopkins was President Wilson's territorial specialist at the Paris conference after World War I. The Polish geographer Eugeniusz Romer, Eugene Romer, uh, survived a double occupation by hiding in a monastery during World War II. He is the founder of modern Polish geography and cartography. He had institutes named after him and is really a household name in Poland from a long, noble ancestry. My Hungarian geographer was twice prime minister of the country, his name is Count Paul Teleki. He committed suicide three days before the Nazis would use Hungarian territory to invade his country. His suicide took place April 3rd, 1941. He is the person most associated with Hungary's revisionist cartography and geography, as it was called in the interwar period after World War I. Stepan Rudnitsky, the founder of modern Ukrainian geography and cartography, uh, was multilingual from the start, knew German, Polish, French, English, Russian, and maybe some other languages. He was a victim of Stalin's purges, arrested in Soviet Ukraine in 1933 and killed uh, together with other members of the Ukrainian intelligentsia in 1937.
0: You've mentioned a few maps within your book. I was wondering if you could show me perhaps a particular map that kind of has some significance, one that you maybe have some, a greater in-depth
1: story with. So uh, among the maps I feature is a map that was drawn in 1925, it was called in German the Volks- und Kulturboden map, Volks- und Kulturboden. And the map um, was drawn based on the writings of Professor Albrecht Penck, who is one of the mapmen I describe. It was an objection to Versailles, and the German loss of territories including its colonies. It was also an objection in the eyes of the Germans to the Polish control of the corridor along the Baltic Sea, uh, which as students of history will know or note from the 20th century uh, became one of the um, main arguments which uh, Hitler and the Nazi party would then use in the 1930s to recreate a greater Reich, a Großdeutschturm. This particular map um, was so important because it revived German colonialism in the interwar period between World War I and World War II. It depicted German control, territorial control, of borderlands in Czechoslovakia and Poland and Yugoslavia. This was a perverted argument, as Bowman once put it. This was an argument against the system established set up with Versailles, with the League of Nations, and ultimately in 1925 with the Locarno Pact, um, which is a very interesting thing to study because the Locarno Pact um, was a way of trying to figure out um, how to avoid war. And of course that didn't work, not inevitably so, but these particular maps like the um, Volksund Kulturboden map drawn in 1925 um, with its alchemy of borders, with its revision with its objection to Slavic democracy was very much a racial, colonial map. It argued that Slavic peoples in Czechoslovakia and Poland and Yugoslavia could not run a government, therefore could not have a state. Therefore, Germans had a right to settle, to colonize, to spread their culture, Um, to um, cultivate the soil, all of these kinds of things. So these ideas of German nationalism and colonialism and revisionism, I think, have to be studied very carefully and those are some of the maps that I feature in (music) MapMen. The, uh, the idea behind a lot of these revisionist maps as they come out of Central and Eastern Europe once empires collapsed was that where people speak a particular language in this case German, wherever there was someone speaking German, that was a German land. Germans therefore not only had cultural rights but political rights, territorial rights, claims to that particular land. In that sense, and this is where it's used by the Nazis with their Aryan racial science and colonial discourse, the entire globe was German. Any place where there was a German speaker could be claimed for the purpose of world domination. We see These ideas still in circulation today. Um, You can call it uh, Pan-Slavism from the 19th century. You can call it Pan-Arabism or Pan-Turkism. These were movements which all developed out of the um, world of empire before 1914. You can also see it in Russia today with this idea of the Russian world or Ruski Mir. Wherever there are Russian speakers, and that includes places where there are Russian minorities significantly, like in, say, Latvia or Estonia, those territories could therefore be claimed by the Russian state. Now, if you think about this idea, of course, it reduces to absurdity. What are the United States' claims to territories around the world? Is it. Um, any place where someone speaks English? Is there any country that legitimately recognizes the United States' ability unilaterally to invade its airspace? Um, Does the Monroe Doctrine or any sort of imperial doctrine of the 19th century still have any meaning? I I think these are questions which um, deserve answers when one studies political geography and geopolitics. But this particular map, to use one example, was a very common type of political map, which laid claim to territories as a futuristic blueprint for war. I'm Steven Siegel, and I'm a professor of Russian, East European, and Eurasian history here at UNC. I think maps draw our attention to international crisis. So, for example, um, to cover what's happening in Libya or Syria or Yemen you need a map. To cover the Israeli Six-Day War or what the Green Line and Blue Line mean today, you need a map to do that. But you're going to need several perspectives around that map in order to understand historical context. The exercise that I give on the very first day to my um, freshman survey students of UNC, at UNC, is to have them draw me a map of their world. I ask them to draw me a world map. Give me a snapshot of where you place the world's continents and nations and territories. When I do this, and by the way, um, anecdotally I plan to retire and make this into a kind of coffee table book after 40 years of being a professor at UNC, it's a fascinating study because it shows that people don't perceive in their cognition and perception and knowledge according to scale. Space, place, these things are relative. The distance between Greeley and Fort Collins is less than the distance between Greeley and Denver. But people don't always draw it that way. So, uh, I mean, my analogy is that we need to study maps as tools and texts, especially in um, the toolbox of nationalists, but we cannot possibly take them at face value, no matter how convincing their statistics and their numbers. You know, Mark Twain said, lies, damned lies, and statistics. I think we could possibly. Say the same about the history of the maps I cover in my book from the 1850s all the way up to the present.